0: Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to hundred dollars. Just visit PrizePicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at PrizePicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to a hundred dollars. Prize Picks daily fantasy sports made easy. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to Red Inca, which is part of the 99.94 Network. I'm Jared Kimber. This podcast has adverts, but if you prefer your podcast without, in the show notes you'll see the link to my Patreon page and you can listen to our chats uninterrupted. Patreon also comes with many other benefits as well, including a Discord channel and private chats with me. But now, the show. from England on 99.94. He always gives, like, Rory really good nicknames, but I think if I said anything, it would just sound <laughs> offensive. So
2: I'll just say, it's Daniel Norcross. Thank you very much. That's very kind of you. Yeah, well, he's got one major nickname, the Puff Pastry Hangman, and it, I use it because it completely confuses him. And I've been asked by a few listeners who have slid into my DMs and said, why do he call him the Puff Pastry Hangman? And I thought, well, I could make up some real reason for it, or I could just tell him the truth, which is... Because he doesn't understand why I do. So- <laughs>
1: Someone asked me as well, and I was like, "To be honest, I just think Dan's messing with him because I don't remember Dollard ever being called that by anyone before the podcast. So unless Correct. I
2: missed something, yeah, <laughs> has he asked you? He has. I think I mumbled something about. Well, I just think it suits you, and in a kind of strange sort of way, it does sort of suit him in a way. Because I mean, you know, you you and I both remember working with a man called um, Nigel Henderson who was a yes. big into pastry. And there's something about the set of both their faces and their premature greyingness that reminds me of pastry. Uh, I'm a big fan of pastry, by the way. I've got to say I love pastry. So, you know, it's an affectionate nickname, but it's one that's born out of, like, I just feel he's very pastry-adjacent uh, a lot of the time. And puff pastry at that.
1: I, Good news is he probably won't listen to this podcast, so he'll be less just not in the clear at all. He'll still have no, no idea. No, no, let's true. keep it that way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you uh, on this podcast about something that you tweeted, which hilariously you tweeted on New Year's Day, which I would have thought for you is like a religious holiday, mm-hmm. like the one day where it's okay to be as drunk as you were the day before. And yet you randomly went on this yeah. Twitter spree talking about fairness in cricket. What brought that up? Was it the Michael Nisa catch uh, over the boundary?
2: Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. Firstly, it was it was COVID. So I, I just uh, tested positive for COVID the day before. And so I wasn't really drinking on New Year's Eve. That explains. I only just why me- you had so I only much just energy. made it. That's right. I, I made it to like midnight and then fell asleep. And then I-, I woke up to watch the New Year's Day game. And Michael Nisa took a really clever catch. Just to remind listeners, it was out, caught it long off. He had to make a lot of ground to his left, which he did. And then he caught the catch. And you know, th- there's an argument that he actually would have been given the catch because he seemed to be in control of himself, but just to be on the safe side because he could feel himself going over the line. And we've seen this many times before. He tossed the ball up in the air, went beyond the boundary rope uh, sponge and then jumped up to catch it. Making
1: sure his feet were not on the ground when he touched it.
2: Correct. Making sure his feet were not on the ground when he touched it and then let go of it just before his foot hit the ground, which is actually... Pretty damn difficult. I I was listening to Mark Church on commentary, and he and Michael Carberry, but firstly, they thought it must surely be six. And then when the sort of logic of it became clear, so they saw the replay, and there isn't a point at which Nisa's foot is on the ground while his hand is touching the ball. Therefore, it seems to work perfectly, happily, within the laws of cricket. But it is, in fact, damn difficult to do, and they both of them tried to do it. Michael Carberry tried to do it, I believe, straight after the game and demonstrating with the Satsuma that it is actually pretty damn difficult both to take the catch in the air and release it in the air and then getting over the other side of the boundary. That's not so tricky. They're very used to that and then planting the foot, taking you the catch. That.
1: I think you and I yeah. might have even had this conversation before. Those padded triangles are actually far harder to step yeah. over, especially if you've got spikes on. There's no way they should be allowed on international sporting arena because they are... Definitely OH&S
2: risk. Oh, you, well, yeah. I mean, and then we're moving into Don Topley territory, who tweeted very angrily about his son, Reese, who, of course, famously hmm. got entangled in one of the boundary sponges. Uh, and uh, did his ankle ligaments, I think. And so was out of the world T20, which he'd definitely have played in. And then there was, oh no, there's all this advertising on the boundary sponge and it's destroying cricket. Oh yeah, (laughs) welcome everybody to the news that cricket requires sponsorship and broadcast money and all the things that go with it in order to survive. Anyway, we're slightly digressing. So he he, he gets over the boundary sponge and he takes the catch. And indeed, when you look at it in real time, you think, well, that's got to be six. And then you see the replay and you go, well, hang on a minute. There is no point at which, as we said, he's grounded beyond the boundary and touching the ball. So that's fine. But it offended so many people's sense of natural justice because the ball, I think, was beyond the boundary. Now, it wasn't really that because when you dig deeper, people appreciate. I mean, one of the greatest pieces of fielding I think I have seen of 2022 was a remarkable stop by Ben Stokes at long off when he caught the ball one-handed diving beyond the boundary and scooped it back behind himself without it touching him. Mm. And, you know, he clearly was holding the ball and the ball was a metre over the boundary sponge, but he hadn't touched the ground and he flipped it back. No one had a problem with that. The problem they had was that Nisa basically spent so long beyond the boundary sponge (laughs) that it offended people's sense of natural justice and that's what got me started on fairness because as they started to talk about this in terms of like i just kept replying look according to the laws it's fine in what way is that possibly out well According to the laws, it's out. That's how it's out. (laughs) I I think what happened was, I think a lot of people
1: thought, well, wait a minute, if you can run around outside the boundary, what's to stop a fielder going 24 rows back, taking the catch in midair, throwing it up and then doing that a couple of times and then throwing it back to someone on the field and getting the catch? And the thing that's stopping that, which a lot of people didn't seem to understand, is the original contact was inside the rope. Correct. The the MCC had already worked out the other loophole that someone could run to, you know, level two somehow, take the catch and then in midair, throw it back to someone at long on and take the catch. They've they've already worked out that loophole. And I think that was the thing that I would say 70% of the complaints were about that original one. And then the, the other complaint was because that second movement, he'd already touched the ground over the rope and now was touching the ball again over the rope. That was the other thing that bothered people. That was about the other 20%. Mm-hmm. John Hotton was very upset about that, you know, you know, one of our friends. And there was a few others. And so people started saying things like, Oh, once the ball's over the boundary, and mm-hmm. I put it out in air quotes because I'll explain why in a minute. Uh, once it's over the boundary, it should be six. But it's like, well, that's not the law anyway, because you can actually no. take a catch inside the boundary with a ball over the boundary. And secondly, and the reason the MCC do these laws, they don't do them by accident. It's absolutely impossible to judge if a ball is over the boundary or not, because we have a curved boundary where we don't have cameras all the way around the ground anyway. It's not mm-hmm. like, I think with Hugh Turbival who said uh, that they should have goal line technology. and like, well, goal line technology, you put a camera inside on a straight line. That is not what cricket grounds are. Plus, then you have how high it can go as well. You know, how high can Cole Jameson jump, for instance. He might be able to take a catch at three and a half meters high, right? All those things. So it it did bother people. But your particular angle, I thought, and I, I think there's a very interesting loophole, which I will be making a video on, of the idea of maybe if you're losing a game and the rain was coming in, or you're playing in a test match and you wanted to delay time, could you throw the ball up? over and over again outside the boundary, catching it. As you said, very hard to do, but how long could you do that in order to have like a 20-minute break, you know, have a couple of fielders throwing it to each other, juggling. Anyway, so from that perspective, what people were upset at you about was the fairness of this particular catch. As we said, it's legal. I've got no particular problem with what happened with it. We actually have the exact same thing happen again and again. The only difference usually is you throw the ball back into the ground. So the second time you touch the ball, you're usually inside the rope. That's the only major difference that has happened here. And I'm not sure how you police that from a law's perspective anyway. I think what Nisa did was absolutely fine. Unless your feet have to be regrounded on the other side of the rope. But because people don't know the laws and they don't know the playing conditions, they saw this and were very aggrieved by it. But, People kept saying it wasn't fair. And that's, I think, where you got very, very interested in because I think you and I are two people who have actually read the laws, unlike most people, and we will say 100% that they are not fair. They're not meant to be fair. In fact... I would go as far to say is that cricket's laws are the opposite. If you were actually trying to come up with a sport where everything was 100% fair, I do not think you would design cricket the way that it is designed even closely.
2: Absolutely not. And there are very, very few sports that I can think of. The only one that springs to mind is golf, where there is an expectation before you start the game that the game isn't fair. I mean, there is justice to it because there is justice because of the laws. And as long as the laws are interpreted correctly, then sides get justice. Where people get very upset is when umpires, not particularly good ones, and sometimes extremely dodgy ones like Fred Goodall, would perhaps not administer the laws in the same way for one side as they would do for another. But this is very different from fairness. Mm. Now, where I start from is there's nothing fair about the toss.
0: No, now, we, we haven't the, even started the, toss- the game,
2: and it's already unfair. No, it's already massively unfair because you turn up at someone else's ground, okay, in someone else's country, or in sometimes very unfamiliar conditions. You know, if you are an Indian T20 side and you arrive in England because of the way India's administrators, for some bizarre reason, refuse to let their players play in any other country other than India then they have to adapt to English conditions. Now, look, that part of it is unfair for different reasons. It's unfair on the players because of what their administrators have done. But essentially, the same level of unfairness is taking place. An English team is able, and every country in the world does this, to curate pitches that suit themselves. And then there's a toss. And if the home side wins the toss and gets the best of those conditions with players who are used to those conditions... This is a very different thing from, say, football or snooker. They were two examples I used. You know, two sides turn up to a, a football ground, and it is essentially, the dimensions can change slightly from place to place, but essentially, it is a level playing field. You might, I suppose, if you get two goals up
1: and it starts to rain, that maybe gives you a better, uh, you know, maybe more of an advantage because you're in front. You might get that you're kicking in one direction and you have a wind behind your back in certain stadiums where. You know, and yeah, but you flip, don't you? No, no, you no, but what I mean time. is, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, even I mean, within a sport that is really designed to be much more fair, you can't make any... Yeah. I'm not sure you can make any sport 100% fair.
2: No, I mean, in snooker, for example, you'll get a kick and, and, and where maybe a bit of dust that's just in the atmosphere has fallen onto your white ball, and then you play a perfectly excellent shot, but the ball deviates in, a, in an unusual fashion. That's not fair. That's unlucky but the game itself is at least designed to be fair and football is designed to be fair.
0: NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town.
2: And it doesn't concern itself with fairness. The laws of cricket are designed to ensure the smooth running of the game and to take out loopholes. So a perfect example is, as you and I both know, because we have studied the history of cricket, that those laws, they kept changing because people took advantage of loopholes. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't a middle stump until, which one was it? Was it Lumpy Stevens, who was the guy who was like bowled about 25 times, but the ball kept on going between the stumps, and someone went, "Duh." do we need like a middle stump? Yes, you do need a middle stump. That's exactly what you need. You need something so that the ball can't pass between one side and the other. So they put in a middle stump. Then some guy with an enormous hat and a Victorian beard comes out with a bat that is the width of the stumps. His entire purpose to that was to not get out.
1: That was at Hambledon in the late 1700s. So when we're talking yep. about this unfairness spread into the game, like people have been exploiting the laws of cricket for the longest possible time. And part of the reason that the laws of cricket are so confusing and also I would say probably maybe are so well tested is because we've had so many different cricketers, you know, do things. So, so one of my other favorite modern ones is David Hooks playing against Victoria purposely taking one run short when he was batting with the tail ender so that he would hit the ball and he'd still get a single, but they would cross over and he'd get the strike back, right? And because he did it in the Shield game, it didn't get much publicity. It didn't go anywhere. And then 40 years later, Kyron Pollard works out the same thing. And he works out that he can make a run while keeping the strike rather than taking a single and losing the strike or, or potentially being run out going for the second run. And we have had players just all the way through. I mean, Bodyline is a perfect example of exploiting... Uh, Weirdly enough, as, as you and I both know, the actual field placements don't change for body line because after body line, people stopped doing it because of all the hubbub about it. It actually changes because of off spinners bowling a leg stump line and cricket was so awful during that period that they had to change the fielding. But again, that's two different kinds of bowling methods, both exploiting what was another loophole within the game, right? Of being If you can have six Correct. players behind square on the leg side... You're restricting people to one kind of shot type. Well, that's a much better form of cricket than allowing them to hit it wherever they want. Well, that's exactly it,
2: and that's why the laws changed. The laws law changed to preserve the spectacle and the integrity of the game. They don't change to make something fair. <laughs> they don't change to make it look like. Oh, hang on, that's surely a six because it's over the the boundary rope. No, it's, we've always been perfectly happy with the fact that it's it's not a six until the ball has gone over the boundary and landed. In effect and got out of the grasp with something. There's never been an issue with this until it just looks bad, and people don't like that. And this happens all the time. No one has any problem at all, it seems to me, with a ball being driven straight back at a bowler, and it brushes a trouser leg. We've seen this before. Brushes the trouser leg, and then flicks onto the stumps, and you run out at the non-striker's end. That's unfair. It's unfair on the non-striker. He didn't do anything wrong, Mm. but he's out. He's got to go, and he's got to suck it up. Now, people... Don't have a problem with that because they can see that, well, if it's, how are you going to distinguish between a trouser leg and another part of the anatomy? And and at what point does fairness intrude there? It's only what looks to be natural justice that seems to be the thing that vexes them.
1: Mm. Well, the other one is um, there was, I think it was Chiteshwar Pajara. I think it was him. He was out pulling in a game where he middled it, but it hit the short leg as the short leg was jumping down and it when his leg and went straight up in the air and was caught. And it's like, well, again, he hasn't done anything wrong. If that ball had travelled an extra three mm. feet, it probably goes into the ground and goes out for four.
2: And instead... In well, arguably, particular- an Ashes series was determined by this. In 1985, uh, was it at Old Trafford when Australia were mounting a splendid rear garden in the last day? And I think it was Wayne Phillips crunched the ball at City Point. It hit Gower's foot. Now, you can argue that it, the ball probably did hit the ground, but the umpire said, no, it's come off the foot as he was leaping up in the air and went in a gentle parabola to a fielder at Silly. I think it was at Silly mid-off and then it went to the fielder at Silly point And he's out. And like, Phillips has done nothing wrong there. And what happened it was suddenly four wickets went in no time. Australia lost the Test match and effectively lost the Ashes with it because they were then 2-1 down with one to play and, and, you know, you know how Ashes series go. So it was a really huge inflection point that was determined by a piece of luck. Now, what people have got to stop doing is watching the game and trying to make sure that everything remains scrupulously fair. Because apart from anything else, I can't think of anything more boring than that. I, mean, <laughs> I don't turn on sport to see fairness applied. I like capricious fate. I like things to be up in the air. And it's, it's one of the reasons why I love cricket, because it allows for a whole variety of these things to happen. They don't offend the structure of the game. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with what Nisa <laughs> did at all Mm. i will give you an example of something that does offend me and that and that does need to be sorted out and we talked about this off air the issue that i know the mcc is terrified of the icc if they had any sense would be terrified of it as well it's the use of drs and i will paint the picture for you and i'm going to give you the most extreme example But this happens during games all the time and is actually just as important because it's not just in the 100 that every ball counts. In all forms of cricket, every ball counts. It's just that we don't take notice of them until the final tally, and then we've forgotten about this incident. So I'm going to give it to you in its starkest terms. Side needs four to win. Last ball of the World Cup final. Doesn't matter whether they're nine down, eight down. Doesn't matter. Four to win. Bowler comes in, right arm over the wicket. Batter moves across his stumps. It flicks the outside of his front pad, and it goes fine past the diving wicketkeeper, down to the fine leg boundary, long legs a little too wide. He puts in the dive. He doesn't quite get there, but it doesn't matter because the bowler is screaming blue murder. Surely that's out. um, Surely that's out. Turns around, and he finds, let's say, Joel Wilson, and Joel Wilson (laughs) decides, yes, that's out. Game over. They've lost by three runs. Batter thinks, I didn't go that far across (laughs) my stumps. I didn't go that far, and it's Joel Wilson. I'm going to refer it. He refers it. Hitting, wickets, hitting, in line, impact, missing. Oh, no. That would have been four leg buys. But it can't be four leg buys because the decision has been given out. So the four runs that he would have scored were it not for Joel Wilson getting it slightly wrong, and I'm only using Joel Wilson because – He's an umpire. It could be any umpire. He doesn't get those four runs. His side lose from an umpire error. And the purpose of DRS is to eradicate umpire errors. The solution to this is incredibly simple. All you need to do, and this should happen in all DRS games, is that the umpire does not give a decision for out, for LBW, or frankly anything really, until the ball is dead. So in this instance... The ball brushes the pad. It runs down to the boundaries. There's a huge appeal. Once the ball's crossed the rope, Joel Wilson sticks up his finger. Pandemonium ensues. Great glee and great delight. But our fella, he refers. It goes upstairs. Oh, it's not out. And before the decision was given, it went over the line for four. So you get the runs. Now, this happens all the time in matches at the moment. It happens in test matches. It happens in one-day games where players were setting off for a leg buy that they were going to get and the umpire's given it out. And then they refer. There's no doubt it has already affected games. It just hasn't happened has on helped. the last
1: ball yet, as far as I can remember. Yeah. And so but it hasn't Jared, become a big issue.
2: Affected it. It's definitely yep. affected the games, but no one has gone back to do the tally. The fact is that, that it's definitely affected them, and it probably affected the re- the overall result, not just the margin of victory or defeat. It is definitely affecting games, and the solution is really simple. Now that is what I would say. That is unfair. That is a situation which is unfair and unnecessarily unfair because the purpose of DRS is to get umpiring decisions correct for the fairness, I guess, of both sides. Now this is not doing that because in the event of a of an umpiring decision being overturned, it's not taking into account what's actually happened there, and it's taken away runs that that would have been scored. That's a simple thing to change. What I don't need to see changing is any of the laws of cricket. Here's another one that drives me mad. Everybody believes, now I say everybody, but way too many people (laughs) believe that once the ball has hit the stumps from a fielder, direct hit, once the stumps are broken, the ball should be dead. Why? It's not doing any harm. I mean, you can argue that it disincentivizes people to throw the stumps down in case the ball ricochets. Well, does it? I don't know. Look, if he's hit the stumps and the guy's out, then he's out anyway. If the guy was in, then maybe he should have thought twice about throwing the ball at the stumps. He knows what the laws are. It's not an issue. It's not an issue at all in actual fact. And it's kind of hilarious because the ball can cannon off in all sorts of different directions. Yeah, the other problem with that is if you get a half
1: volley and you smash a straight drive and it clips the stumps on its way for four, you don't get any runs in that situation? Like... It doesn't really yeah. make any sense. There, there's heaps of, There's obviously my favourite, you know, the zombie run-out where you get a waist-high full toss and you're caught off yes. this full toss. And then because we don't call the full toss as straight or A as no balls, there's this sort of weird period where the the batters can't run and the bowling team can't run you out because the ball is already dead. And so you have this, and not to mention that the umpires get this wrong all the time because, they, quite, you know, Rabada was given out run-out. There's been a couple of run-outs being given in professional cricket over that sort of thing. And so, you know, you know, where we are again, you know, there are little things that need to be changed and some of these need to be changed just because the game is different now, right? Like it is Mm. fundamentally a different sport than it used to be. I think retired out is a really, really interesting, you know, decision to to make because I know a lot of people who want the uh, retired out when you, if you retire out, you should lose a ball, right? That's the more important thing now than a wicket. If teams are willing to give up a wicket because they want another batter to come in, should they not also lose a ball? But if you do that, why? well, no, I agree with you. But also if you do that, all it's going to mean is we're going to see players go out purposely in games. Is that what we want? We want players in a sport bereft by match fixing i thought so i like to have a sacrifice bunt in baseball because there's it's an obvious reason why you're doing it it's a little bit different in the 16th over if you suddenly walk past the ball on purpose and you know do a little wink back to the wicket keeper back in in those uh old-fashioned cricket games especially the 3 D games in england right so I, look mm. there are a lot yeah. of people who want little things to be fixed but You know, from my time with – don't get me started on where the waste is, by the way, which is the absolute (laughs) stupidest thing ever. Um, But there are lots of little things um, that need to be looked at um, from those perspectives. But fairness is just something completely different. And, And the other thing with fairness is fairness in sport, it's used in that romantic way. It's funny. I Googled it, expecting to see more articles from people like you and me going, actually, I think you'll find that fairness in sport is nonsense. And, you know, that basketballer, uh, you know, slipped on the uh, on the puddle on the court because the guy came on to clean the, the court, didn't do it on time. We don't replay it, even though we know it's not his fault that he, he slipped over. But actually, the word fairness in sport is really used by a lot of people that have that kind of belief that sports should be more pure than everything else that it should be mm. this, you know, uh, uh, you know, this... Uh, haven.
2: It's a haven. It's a haven yeah. away from the injustice of normal life. Yeah, and people who think Apparently. that
1: politics shouldn't be involved in sport, despite the fact that yeah. they haven't realised that they have been from the beginning of sport. And I remember in, in Aussie Rules Football, you'll like this, so Aussie Rules Football, not particularly known as... Uh, as a, Well, firstly, the ball bounces in every direction, so I don't know what kind of fairness you're <laughs> expecting there. In that particular sport, the best player in the, in the AFL back in the old days used to get the fairest and best award, and they changed that to the best and fairest. And they used the word fairest to mean that someone who had not been suspended for knocking out another player. And so oh. you do start to see the word fair get sort of stretched and, and used in all these different ways in sport. And the thing that I've always thought about, there's a, gr- there's a lot of great, really interesting articles out there by athletes who've been caught doping. And what they will say is, wait a minute. I was willing to, you know, essentially all all but change my DNA. (laughs) I was willing to potentially die early, to grow a third nipple, to shrink my penis, to do whatever I had (laughs) to do to be the greatest athlete in the world. And I'm not seen as someone who's trying my best. Well, this other guy just happened to be, you know, born six foot eight with a really high leap and I'm losing to him. The whole thing about sports is that most of, especially now, The further we go, the more genetic sort of freaks who rule professional sports. Anyway, that's not particularly fair if you have to go up against someone.
2: Well, how does it happen in basketball? I mean, apart from, I remember a guy called Alton Bird, and everyone remembered Alton Bird because he was five foot ten. He was a very good basketball player, but what was amazing about him was that he was five foot ten, and so he was like an exception that proved the rule. That we all knew who Alton Bird was, but we'd never heard of all the other guys who were five foot ten, five eleven, six foot six one. Who are good at basketball because frankly, they did not stand a chance. You had your entry level. What's the average height? The average height of an NBA player is six
1: foot seven, and the average wingspan, I think, is six foot nine and six foot ten. So you don't just need to be tall.
2: Got to have really long
1: arms. Yeah, you need to be <laughs> almost like, was it Neanderthals who had the longer arms? I think it was Neanderthals. Whichever early version of us had the freakishly long arms that came from from our our, our um, eight heritage. So yeah. It's straight away, I remember playing basketball at school. We, you would have loved it. We had a PE teacher who was a former Hungarian handball champion,
2: right? Oh yeah, and, they loved handball in Hungary. Yeah,
1: and, hungry, and he yeah. moved to Australia to become a PE teacher, Mr. Zagurski, and he like every hair was in place, like everything. He was the only person I ever saw who was never untucked, and I don't. I mean, he was never loosely tucked, <laughs> right? And you know, built like a brick as well. And I remember saying, to we are playing you know, a PE game one day, and I said something along the lines of, well, that's not fair. And he said, do you think sport's supposed to be fair? And he went to show me. He got me to go. There was a kid in our class who was six foot seven. And he said, okay, whoever gets this tip off wins the game. And he just threw the ball up at the air. And I jumped really well and never got within a foot of the other kid, right? And that's always stuck with me, that we're searching for something that doesn't even make sense. And there are plenty of other ways that we haven't even touched all the different things in cricket that are not particularly fair. One, I remember Stuart Law. I was chatting to Stuart Law one day. I probably told this story a thousand times, but it's so funny because of how grumpy Stuart Law was. But Ajanta Mendes came up, and Ajanta Mendes was holding a Duke's ball, and he sort of whispered, he, he sort of whispered to Stuart Law so I couldn't hear but saying, I can't bowl with this ball. Stuart Law's, like, Stuart Law's thinking that the ball's wet or something, right? Mm. It's fine. It's just a ball. And he goes, no, it's different than the Kookaburra. And when I do my flicky carom thing, it doesn't work. Stuart Law went, well, fucking go home then. What's the point of you being in England? <laughs> and, <laughs> I, I, it was brutal, in Australian coaching. Don't get me wrong. Some of the things Stuart law yep. said were hilarious like that. But the other side of it was, that's the deal, right? Like you know that is the deal. You become very good at a certain thing at cricket, and then for whatever reason, they change the ball, you go to a new location or whatever. But if you think about it from the perspective of Kyle Jameson compared to Jimmy Anderson or Dale Steyn, if they had his height they would have clocked cricket, right? They would have ended up with a bowling average of 12 if they just had his height and strength available to them. Kyle Jameson's a brilliant bowler. I'm, I'm not, there's going to be no Kyle Jameson heresy on this podcast because I think he's an absolute legend and he's one of the most talented tall bowlers I've ever seen. He's up there with Joel Garner, right? Just absolutely mm-hmm. incredible. However... It's not as good as Dale Stane or Jimmy Anderson on understanding what the ball does, on raw skills, being able to put it in the same spot over and over again. But that extra eight inches of height and maybe 12 inches of wingspan certainly comes in quite handy, doesn't it? It's just not a fair sport, and it's never going to be.
2: No, and and look what sport is. I mean, uh, you, you look at rugby. Rugby is a game which, a little bit like basketball, is increasingly demanding that people are... 17, 18 stone, and can run the 100 metres in 11 and a half to 12 seconds, absolute bare minimum. Uh, this wasn't always the case. When it was um, an amateur sport, there were kind of fat guys up front. There were tall guys in the, in the middle of the scrum. There were like skinny little wispy fast people. That was the game of rugby union. Now it's become professional. And what professionalism does is it it weeds out fairness and it rewards unusual and extraordinary gifts, as you were mentioning earlier. There's uh, people who are born with those extraordinary gifts. But I suppose it's fair to say that if you put a whole bunch of people who had all those gifts and you stuck them on a pitch, you would want the game they were playing to be intrinsically fair. I can understand why people say that. But if you are hoping for that to happen in cricket, you know, what is one of the most regular gripes that you hear people say about their team, their team, when England go to India? So, they won the first test in Chennai and the game was pretty flat. And they got the best of the conditions because they batted first. The pitch slightly deteriorated and they won the game. And India's response to that was to prepare a bunch of, of wickets that really turned sharply and bounced. And so, you know, they went into a pink ball test. And England thought they'd stand a chance at a pink ball test. Well, not a bit of it because it was one that was going to help tall bowlers who who bowled spin into the pitch. And England didn't have one of those. It just weirdly skidded off that surface. Weirdly skidded. And the thing is, that's not fair in one sense, but it's entirely to be expected. And when Indian batters come to England and they're slightly surprised by the emerald green tinge, I don't think they are. I think they understand full well what's going on, that this is going to suit England's seam bowlers. And so... You know, we start from the very premise. We start from the toss. We start from the pitch preparation. Leaving alone all the things you just mentioned there about the inbuilt advantages that individuals have, we don't need the game to be fair. We need the game to be just. We need the laws of the game to be applied as they exist. Now, there's no law in the game that says, if you look a bit weird, the umpire's allowed to give you out even when you're not out. That would be unfair. That would be unjust and unfair, and I would be in favour of getting rid of that. Justin Langer would have averaged five. (laughs) Exactly. But that's not in the laws. So I plead with people, I plead with everybody who loves cricket, think twice before you want to change the laws of the game. The laws of the game have evolved over a long, long time, and they will continue to evolve, but they need to be changed only when something really glaringly obvious, like the example I've given with leg buyers with DRS, like that, only there have you got a real case. If your case is, we've got to change this because, look, he hit it so far and the ball was over the boundary. I mean, that's six, isn't it? What they actually meant, what it, what they really meant, Jared, was that that was a really exciting game of cricket bubbling up. And had the six been given, they'd have needed, I think, 22 off 11 and it would have been a really thrilling finish. But unfortunately, with him getting out, <laughs> the game rather petered out. And yeah, that's unfortunate. The spectacle was sort of destroyed by a brilliant piece of fielding. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the batter, and I've forgotten who it was now. I mean, if John Hotton was annoyed with it, it was probably James Vince. I can't remember. <laughs> Talking about unfair, I'm going to finish with this and see, see what you think about
1: this. James Vince got one of the most unfair deliveries in the history of cricket. He did. The ball of any century at Perth. Was yeah. it Perth? Uh, by Mitchell Stark. Yeah, Mitchell yeah. Stark bowling, what, 149, yep. 150 Ks, left arm round the wicket. Ball should have missed yep. leg stump by about a foot and a half. Instead, it takes off or middle or whatever it was because it hit a crack, right? James Vince has done nothing wrong there, right? That's just a ball that happens and... You know, you talked about molly grubbers in your um, Twitter thread as well. Like, mm. how many times have we just seen a player? And you, sometimes it's on the third, you know, in the third innings, you get the ball that rolls along the ground. Or sometimes in the first day, one just spits up a little bit more and then the pitch evens out. It, it's not exactly a fair surface. If cricket was actually going to be fair, the pitch is like the first place you start, right? So what you would do is you would have Astro Turf wickets to make sure that the ball, whatever the ball is did, it's because of what they do, not the pitch. And then the second thing you would do is you'd play it like baseball where you'd bat for one over and then the other team would bat for one over so that the weather conditions can't dictate anything else as well. It's massively unfair. And that is, I think you're right, that is for me part (laughs) of the kind of, maybe not the appeal, but there's no way you can clock cricket. I kind of feel so, with some other sports, there's an ability to clock them, as in you can suddenly you know, get to this level, and obviously new athletes come in and they continue to change the game. But cricket just has so many random things that happen to it that you can't just get on top of. And a lot of that just goes back to the fact that we have a wicket that is a living, breathing
2: – well, do, do the trees mm-hmm. breathe? Do they breathe? Does li- yeah, kind of. They don't have lungs, but they sort of – yeah. Yeah, <laughs> The grass is alive, Dan. The grass is alive. Yeah,
1: And because it is alive, it means it is going to change throughout a game. And so the most random changes can actually happen to you throughout a game. That is the brilliance of cricket, that you don't have to just conquer the other team. You don't have to be better than the other team. You have to be better than weather, than light, than grass. You know, the whole world is kind of against you in cricket to win a game. And then you might be the best team. And at the end, it
2: still might be a draw. That's not fair. Yep. But that's brilliant. No, it, it isn't. And, and they're some of the best games, aren't they, that make those draws. And just sort of one like, like observation that I would make before we go is that I wonder if this obsession with fairness is actually in cricket partly because of the rise of T20 as opposed to test cricket, where test cricket was – those of us who are brought up on test cricket recognise the essential unfairness of it. An unfairness that's been added to by day-night test matches, actually. So (laughs) if you face a new pink ball just as the lights have come on, it's a very different kind of kettle of fish, as anybody will tell you who was at Adelaide in 2017-18 from facing the new pink ball at 2.30 in the afternoon with a lovely sunny day. So in test cricket, people who love test cricket were brought up on it, I think are brought up on unfairness, going, oh, no, we've got the worst of the conditions. That's what it is. In T20, because the game is played on a pitch that seldom deteriorates, there's one notable example here, which is the UAE World T20, yeah. where it was ridiculous because the toss won the match. But all things being equal, T20 is set up around the world to be played in such a way that the pitch doesn't really deteriorate. You each get the same pretty rubbish ball that doesn't really do anything. The boundaries stay where there are and it's a hitting contest, and everything is recordable. And because a lot of stats and analysis takes place now, people want the game to be fairer, because they want it to be recordable, and they want it to be understandable. And I, personally speaking, as a big fan of T20 cricket, I'm not slagging off T20 cricket for it, but I just wonder whether this slight creeping concern about fairness is people who are brought up more on the recordable certainties of T20 as opposed to the capricious vicissitudes of five-day test cricket? That is the question I'm going to throw out there. I can't answer it. If anybody would like to, please do. On that note, the only other thing I would
1: say is that T20 cricket is up there with, what, basketball and netball as one of the few sports where you essentially go into every game knowing you're going to get the same amount of resources as the opposition. One-day cricket's another one as well. And test cricket... Is absolutely (laughs) the opposite of that, where one team can bat for four days and the other one can go get stuff. Uh, Daniel Norcross, thank you for coming on my podcast. I'll thank myself for being the, what, temporary (laughs) puff pastry hangman on your podcast. And I'm sure we'll chat again soon.
2: It was a joy and a pleasure as ever. Au revoir.
1: Thanks for listening to Red Inca on 99.94. For more information about us, go to 99.94dm.com. Remember to download our app or just search for West Indies, India, England, South Africa, and Sri Lanka with the search term 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. There is more information on my guests in the show notes. Please support them where you can, but also support us. If you can't help out on Patreon, every single review, share, or word of mouth suggestion to your friend helps us. However, this podcast is made available by the people who support us at Patreon, so thank you to all of those who do. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes the best audio anyone can from random Zoom calls. We also have a great support team from 42, with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia, and Meda Akam producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. Our theme tune is by the Red Cricket.
0: Podcast Network.